Welcome to Elevated Voices Podcast, where we value using our voice collectively to explore life challenges, including mental health, addiction, trauma, and ways to heal. With our voice, we empower, encourage, and transform lives. I'm your host, Daishika Bibbs, a certified trauma-focused therapist, licensed clinical social worker, and licensed certified addiction specialist. As you listen, ask questions, and enjoy the show, remember, this podcast is not a substitute for a therapeutic relationship with a licensed mental health professional. As we embark on this journey together, let's elevate our voice to echo the sound for the voiceless. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Today's guest is who I classify as a warrior. She has 17 years of experience in the counseling arena. She is the proud owner of Donna White Counseling and Consulting. She is a licensed professional counselor, a licensed professional counselor supervisor, a licensed addiction counselor, and a certified clinical supervisor. She has been a criminal justice advocate for many, many years. She currently holds a position as an associate director for South Carolina criminal justice reform. Elevated Voices podcast would like to give a warm welcome to Miss White. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, good. I see here that you are wearing multiple hats and that you are very busy. So with almost two decades of experience, I know that I and my listeners have so many questions about you and your experience. And I want to just jump right in. Can you tell me what is criminal justice reform and what inspired you to become an advocate? Um, so in 1999, I heard about the case of Amandou Diallo, who was shot and killed by four plainclothes officers in New York, and it just really sparked my interest. Um, I think the biggest thing for me that stood out was the 41 shots that were fired. So before I even became aware of the term excessive use of force, it just seemed excessive to have 41 shots fired at a single individual. He was hit 19 times, and that just really, I don't know, it just hit me a little different. When they were acquitted, I became like even more interested in that. And I went to college the same year. I was always drawn to helping people and talking. So counseling was my career path. Like I kind of knew that's what I was going to do, but I always had this interest in criminal justice. And I ended up taking so many electives that I ended up with a criminal justice minor. Just, it just happened that way. So it was kind of cool. And so as an undergraduate, I had the unique opportunity to intern at our local detention center. And I got to spend a significant amount of time with incarcerated people and listen to their stories. I listened to their struggles while incarcerated, how they got to where they were, um, the family struggle while they were incarcerated, all of the barriers to successful reentry. Um, post-incarceration, and I just never really forgot that experience. And um, through the years, I've worked in several areas. I've worked in the school system. I've worked in mental health, substance use. I ran an inpatient substance use treatment program for a while. 
providing services, you know, counseling services, but I realized they all intersected with the criminal justice system. And so fast forward years later, I meet Ali Minigakis through some criminal justice reform work here in Charleston, South Carolina. And last year she founded and became the executive director of South Carolina for criminal justice reform. And so that organization, SC for CJR is what we call it, is a statewide nonpartisan nonprofit grassroots organization um, that's dedicated to achieving holistic criminal justice reform in South Carolina. And so Allie and I ended up connecting. I joined the organization. I later became the associate director and the rest is kind of history. And I, I enjoy it because I get to link the criminal justice passion with the mental health stuff. And it's, and it's been pretty awesome. That's awesome. That's actually amazing, beyond amazing. And being able to actually link both of them together because I feel that that's much needed is being able to help individuals who are in incarcerated and focus more on allowing them to achieve better mental health because it's so much that goes into, you know, being incarcerated in the trauma that an individual may face and then allowing someone to come out and re-enter into society. Things have changed a lot depending on how much time they have spent incarcerated. Yeah. So you have a holistic focus. What does that mean? So we don't provide direct services to people, but we focus on criminal justice system with that holistic approach. We look at everything. And I think what makes us different is that we have a a three-pronged kind of multidisciplinary approach where we look at law, we look at research, and we look at behavioral health. And we tie all of those things together. So Allie, um, who was our executive director, her focus is on law. She's a criminal um, defense attorney. And Philip is a criminologist, and um, he does all of our research, Philip Berry. And then I focus on the behavioral health portion. And through collaboration, advocacy, research, and education, we look to empower the community. We provide educational seminars, webinars, workshops. And again, because we look at this system holistically, we focus on crime prevention, police contact, due process, sentencing, reentry, and like... Right now, we have a heavy focus on what's going on in South Carolina regarding the bills with the death penalty. We're also looking at policing and excessive use of force, improving the pretrial process and making sure that all people have representation and then also looking at speedy trial. So we cover a lot of things. Our main focus is collecting information and educating people about that information. Thank you for that. And I think that your... Your agency's three pillars are amazing. I don't know of any criminal justice reform agencies out there who's focusing on the behavioral health perspective. And to just add that component in there, again, it's amazing because I feel like it goes hand in hand. It does. It absolutely does. You know, and I think about the mental health component of this, you know, how does being involved in the criminal justice system impact mental health. You mentioned that earlier, like the trauma and everything that comes along with that. Um, But not only the mental health of those that are incarcerated, but also the families. And then looking at the disproportionality on how it impacts those with mental health issues or substance use disorders. You know, there's some 
NAMI, who's the, I think the National Alliance on Mental Illness, you know, they say one in five people book every year have a mental illness and one in 25 of those have a serious mental illness. And then according to NIDA, 65% of the population has an active substance use disorder. Yes. So when we think about that, behavioral health has to tie into criminal justice. It's kind of crazy that we would leave it out. And when you think about that perspective as well, we also kind of start to look into how racial and ethnic disproportionality fits into that as well, because we know that people of color are less likely to seek treatment. Um, they have less access to treatment a lot of times. They experience higher levels of stigma. A lot of times that's related to spiritual, religious, or cultural beliefs or misinformation about services. Because, you know, we've heard it before. Black people don't go to therapy. Like, you know, we pray, we pray about we it. We pray about it. <laughs> you know, we tell Jesus all about our troubles, but I like to tell people Jesus and therapy goes a long way together. Like we can combine everything and work at it, you know, holistically. But, you know, there's underrepresentation in the service population and in the, in the provider population rather. So like there are not a lot of therapists that look like us sometimes. And so when you think about low rates of health insurance and coverage for people. Sometimes there's language barriers in the communities of people of color. So when you think about that, it's kind of hard to think that we would not put all of this together. Because it, because it needs to be. Yeah. And you raised, literally, like you raised two awesome, amazing points. Mental health does go hand in hand. That was one great point that you made. And to be honest, our criminal justice system has failed us, period. So when they are arrested, for many, many years, there was no psychiatric assessment prior to them being arrested, prior to them being booked. And so it's like, well, if you're talking to this person and if you feel that this person is under the influence or this person may seem crazy, you know, people, we use that word a lot because um, sometimes we, for the lack of yeah. education, we don't know. And, you know, we always talk about crazy. And so if you feel like somebody is crazy, then why not put something in place to help those individuals who are different, who yeah. may struggle? And again, our criminal justice system has failed, you know, us as American people. And then your second point of the racial and ethnicity disparities in the criminal justice system, there's no secret there. You know, it's almost like it's a taboo topic mm -hmm. of talking about it. And we just want to sweep it under the rug. But when is that going to stop? Yeah. And so when we think about criminal justice reform, you talk about policing, you talk about sentencing, reentry, and then this proportion of the drug policy is a big, a major contributor to the ethnicity and the racial disparities that we see in our criminal justice system. So how do you all handle that? How do you all work to bring awareness to all of these discrepancies that we as American people face? Yeah, I think it kind of goes back to that three prong approach with the law, the research, and the behavioral health, and the, and the big educational component that we do. So, you know, when you 
how do we look at it? Well, we look at it from the law side. So we have that person that looks at the policies of legislature, all of those things. So, you know, in addition to the three of us, we have a host of undergraduate interns and law school interns and volunteers and community members that participate. So we look at it from that law perspective, like what policies, what legislature, what bills are you know out there right now? What, what can we look at from that area? And then from the research perspective, we're gathering that data. Like, what does it look like? What does it look like over the years? And then from the behavioral health, you know, again, looking into that piece, but putting it all together and just providing that education to the community. Because very rarely do you get digestible information because we can talk about law, but if, if you're not a law person, I'm not a law person. I mean, this is you know, criminal justice reform is what I enjoy, but I don't know a lot about laws and policy. I'm learning it you know, as part of this process. But if somebody says, well, Bill 2849 just passed, I don't know what that is. Like I have to do some research and I have to look it up. You know, so the great thing about an organization is that we pull all that information together and we put it in digestible formats to, to give to the community. And so through education and awareness, people can know what's happening. They have a place to go to see what's happening and they can act on that and they can become advocates themselves. When your agency take that information and dissect it and then represent it, are they receptive? to the information that your agency presents? One of the things SC for CJR, we, we really pride ourselves on is that we tr- we make sure that we put out information that is legit. You know, a lot of times you'll see information out there that says, oh, one in five people do this. But if we're going to post it and we're giving it to the community, we're going to tell you where it came from. So, you know, I think whether or not people are receptive is it's kind of a personal choice. You know, we've been doing this death penalty series recently and there's a great divide on whether or not we should sentence people to death or whether we should not. It's a a big divide, but the information and the resources that we put out for the community, when we do that, we put, you know, where we got it from. So if you, if you want to fact check us, you can. (laughs) Okay. So, you know, like as a, in terms of whether or not people are receptive, I think it's just if they're receptive to the idea. But when we give out the information, it's going to be factual. Thank you for that. Yeah. And I think that's important because I want to be able to say, if I'm reading your article, I want to be able to say, well, let me let me learn more about that. Yeah. And what research study did they get that from? And not just, oh, this agency just put some things together and presented that to us. So, you know, I think that's very important that your agency not only give the information, but you guys have the data to back that up. Yeah. One of the cool things that we do, so Philip writes a blog and it's called, what is it, what, what's it mean Wednesday? It comes out every Wednesday. We post it and he takes these huge research articles and he breaks it down and just makes it really simple to understand. Um, which is great for me because I'm like, I'm reading this article now, like, I don't understand half of these numbers and the charts and everything that are going on. But he takes that, breaks it down and like here. And what he does is that he cites where he gets it from. So again, you know, we always try to tie it back to the original source. So if people have a question, they can go back and look at it themselves. Got it. Yeah. And I think that's important because everybody do not know the lingo of the criminal justice system 
or law, period. And yeah. when you start looking at some of those numbers in the language and the way that it is written, it can be intimidating. Exactly. So, you know, I'm going to give a shout out to, to Phil for that. So yeah. thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> you also mentioned something that was very important. You said families are affected. And I feel that sometimes we lose sight of that because the individual was found guilty or the individual made a mistake or the individual was at the wrong place at the wrong time, hanging with the wrong crowd or just decided to act. Yeah. And so, you know, we in America, you know, we created this criminal justice system in order to serve justice. But sometimes I feel like our criminal justice system do us a disservice. Yeah. And it's interesting that you bring up that point. So, you know, I see families affected in different ways. And I think that a lot of times when we think about grief and loss, we think about death. You know, it's the first thing that kind of pops up. But grief and loss comes from any kind of absence. Definitely. So when people are sentenced and they're removed from their home, removed from their families, that family goes through a sense of grief on their own, you know, so there's that aspect of it. There's also the financial burden that it leaves families with and it's difficult. So I, I can remember, I met a guy years ago and he was being sentenced on his third drug charge and he was 20 three at the time, I believe, and he was facing 35 years federal time, which meant he would serve, I believe he told me he would serve 32 years indefinitely, which was just pretty amazing to me. One of his things that he said to me that really stood out was that, one, he would not see his daughter outside of a jail. His daughter was two at the time, and he was like, she'll be in her 30s, you know, by the time I can actually see her, hold her, hug her. But he shared his story of how he got to where he was. And it was just crazy because he, he was a kid who wanted to support his family because they didn't have a lot. So he started selling drugs as, you know, means to generate a little more income. Well, when he went to jail and he got out, he quickly realized there was not a way for him to really make money. He had not completed school. He didn't really have a trade. He didn't really have a lot of things and just struggled to get reintegrated into society. So every time he felt like he tried to do something positive, it didn't work out. He just went back to what he knew. And it, he admitted, you know, that that wasn't the best decision, but he's also like, well, how do you take care of a family right. when you don't have a lot of means to do so? Right. And so I'm not saying that, you know, his decision was, the best. He didn't say his decision was the best, but he was the sole financial provider for that family. And so when he was incarcerated, the family struggled. I mean, his daughter was left without a dad, you know? And so when I think about the family impact, that family has to readjust their entire life as well. And so there's a mental health component with that. And when we talk about services and the availability of services to people you know, I'm always looking at what does re-entry look like for incarcerated people, but also what does family services look like for people when their loved ones are incarcerated? 
And I think that needs to be a focus. I think that's something we have to look into. Thank you for bringing that up. And it's much needed, but we're not talking about that. So it's like, because my loved one was found guilty, the family is also found guilty, Mm -hmm. right? And it's almost like a double-edged sword. We are not winning. We can't win on either side. So you you mentioned re-entry. And so if if I had a magic wand, (laughs) I would wave that magic wand and create a program for our inmates to get them back into the workforce, get them back into society. And we don't do that. So if you want someone to succeed, if you're telling, for example, the gentleman in your situation, I'm going to give you this time, you're going to serve your time for your crime, but you're not going to allow him or give him any skills that he can use when he re-enter into society, the likelihood that he's going to re-offend again is high. Because that's all he knows is making money the fast way. And he has to provide for his family. And you said it yourself. He, He didn't say one time that what he did was right. He knew that what he did wasn't right. It's almost like survival of the fittest. It's either we're going to survive or we're going to die. And I want my family to survive. I want myself to survive. And if I have to go back to jail for that, that's probably a chance that I might take. It is. And it's, you know, when you were talking about skills, even if they, even if people are able to get skills within the system while they're incarcerated, we still have to do a better job of connecting them once they're out. Um, Because I can teach you all kinds of things while you're incarcerated, but if at the time, when you're ready to be released, if all I give you is a bus pass and say, good luck, I haven't really helped. So I look at things like re-entry programs. What are the availability of those? You know, where can we, or how can we start reallocating more funding to programs like that? You know, we spend so much money in different areas, but how can we reallocate those funds in, in programs that would be beneficial to reduce recidivism? Or if we put programs in place that may keep people from entering the criminal justice system from the beginning. Yes. Which is, you know, it's kind of like, hey, wouldn't that be a wonderful idea? Yeah. When we look at the, the communities, you know, we always talk about our high, our high crime rate areas or our hot spots. When we look at those communities, again, it's not a, not a secret that a lot of times those communities, when we talk about gang violence, we're looking at black and brown communities, right? Yes. But if we also look at those same communities, those communities lack funding and programs and resources. So what if we were able to put those things in those communities to give people different options? You're right. I think that that would be amazing. 
But I'm going to play devil's advocate for one minute. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the system is designed for that. I think our system is designed for failure. Yeah. And I think that especially now with a lot of prisons going private, Mm -hmm. they look at us, meaning brown people, meaning black people, people of color as a dollar sign. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to say, you know, this is a racial thing. Because I know my listeners, when they listen to this, they're going to say, oh, she's making it about race. But listeners, please hear me carefully, okay? It is about race. All right? It is about race. And we in America, again, have come a long way with sweeping it out of the rug. We need to raise awareness with this issue and this problem. And we have been doing it. Yes, don't get me wrong. We have been doing this and we we continue to do it. But it's like some of the work that we're doing is falling on deaf ears and we're not being heard. But we need to continue to raise our voice. We need to continue to push harder. We need to continue to push back. And one of the things that we can do together is make sure that we are involved in the voting process. Make sure we are involved in who we elect to be our townsmen, who we elect to be our congressmen, who we elect to be our senators, and really do our research when it comes to putting and electing the individuals sometimes that we select for these offices. And so I know voting is a whole, and politics is a whole nother episode. I mean, we can talk about that for days and days and days, but that also ties into some of the struggles that we face as American people. I was just saying, it's hard because there are so many aspects of the criminal justice system that are broken that when you kind of open that box to start talking about all the things that could change or need to change or things that we need to look at or educate ourselves about, it kind of opens the floodgates. And it's like, oh, well, this and this and this, which which only reaffirms the, the thought, feeling, belief, however you want to phrase it, that our criminal justice system is it's broken. We talked about how it disparately impacts certain communities. And when we say certain communities, again, we're talking about communities of color a lot of times. And then it's outdated, it's ineffective in reducing or preventing crime, and it's inhumane. Yeah. Like the sen- from the sentencing, the treatment of incarcerated people, and the overall social impact is, you know, so we look at reasons that the criminal justice system needs reform, that's it in my opinion. I mean, but again, once you open that box, you can kind of pull wherever you want to pull, you know, whatever you want to pull from wherever you want to pull it. But those are kind of my thoughts. Okay. I'm going to ask you this. What would be an ideal re-entry program? Oh, if I had a, ma- you said a magic wand earlier, so you made me think about that. If I had a magic wand and I can make an ideal re-entry program, I think it, again, would have to have that holistic approach. I would love to see something that included 
reintegrating family, getting family systems back together. Clearly, I'm an advocate for counseling and therapy. So, you know, being able to provide that financial education, financial literacy. I think those are the things that really stand out to me, you know, building skills, job skills, social skills. I think being able to communicate with people, it makes me think about, and I mentioned this before, but not here. I met a gentleman when I was interning at the detention center who had gone in for a significant amount of time. I think it was like a murder charge. I'm pretty sure, but he had gotten out. And in the time that he was incarcerated, which was close to 20 years, he he didn't know how to do anything when he got out because everything had changed. It, you know, he'd gone in in the 80s, came out in the 2000s, and it was like... It was a culture shock. Yeah, and it reminds me, if you've ever seen the movie Life... Yes. Um, you know, at the end, that scene, when they go out and they're like looking at the, everything that's going by and the people and how they're dressed, and you see them, you know, at the end and they're at this baseball game, but it's because it really is like that for people. People get out and they have no clue what's going on. So, you know, I think a re-entry program would also have to include something that would help them kind of ease back in. Like th- this is what's happening in the world. This is how these things work. It's it's insane how that, just that whole process. And it's really touching to me because it's, it's a brand new world. It is. And one thing that you mentioned was therapy. Mm-hmm. And therapy, it is still have that stigma behind it. But if individuals don't want to engage in the therapy piece because of that stigma, we have this new component called coaching. Mm -hmm. Their job is unique to the point where you still can get the help that you need without the whole therapeutic component to it. And a lot of people prefer to do life coaching or have a life coach. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you need a therapist, let's put you in counseling, but there are other alternatives out there. Yeah. The most important part for me is just making sure that you have a professional that you can process and bounce ideas off of and be able to articulate your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings, and just, you know, put it out there and allow that person to guide you and bounce ideas back at you or give you feedback and allow you to look at things, look at life in a different way. Yeah. And even sometimes, you know, push you to a a healthy point of getting outside of your comfort zone. Because I think that so many of us are afraid Mm -hmm. to be outside of our comfort zone. But more so, we only know what we know, right? We only know what we know. And that is our safety net. So if a person grew up in an impoverished area and what they saw every day of their lives is the drug dealer selling whatever substance that they're selling, right? And they see that this drug dealer is making money, but my mom 
is on welfare. My mom is trying to work a nine to five, but she still can't keep the lights on. And my mom has two jobs and she's still struggling, right? And it's like, well, what do I do? Do I let her struggle? Or, you know, as the man of the house, you know, because my father may not be there, you know, what do I do? Or as, you know, the second woman of the house, you know, I feel my mom's pain. So what do I do? And if this is a way that I can make money, then why not? Right? Yeah. So again, going back to is survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I know that it was a discussion that hip hop, that rap music is doing the American people, especially us people of color, a disservice because they are rapping about things that individuals wish they had. And sometimes these individuals are going into the world and enacting on what they hear. Mm -hmm. And so I know that it was a a big conversation about that. And so I say that I disagree because if you're already living that way, you know, it doesn't matter what this rapper says and what they show in the video and what they express in their lyrics, because believe it or not, them writing is a form of therapy for themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's one way to express, you know, Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, when I hear you, when I heard you say that, it also made me think that, you know, I guess people will have their own perspective on rappers and, you know, how their music influences people. But I'm not really sure if if they're doing the disservice or if we're doing a disservice to our own communities. You know, you were talking about the availability of coaches, you know. And because of this, well, not because of, but there's a stigma related to therapy, but there are also coaches, there's mentor programs. And I just don't think we expose ourselves to enough of those. We don't talk about them enough. You know, if we had more mentors in communities for adolescents, we could keep them out of juvenile detention centers, you know, so music can play all day and they can hear whatever they want to hear. But if we had strong supports within our community, they may not be as easily influenced. And I say may not, because I can't speak for everyone, but I definitely think we could reduce some of that. I love the idea of coaches. I love the idea of mentors. And I also love the idea of reducing stigma. We have to stop talking about mental health as if it's bad. Yes. Um, You know, we have to stop telling each other that you'll be okay just because, you know, like, oh, you'll get over it. You're strong. You're a strong person. We have to stop doing that. We have to check in. We have to ask if you're okay. We have to say, get help. And whether that help is a therapist, whether it's a coach, whether it's a mentor, we have to say to people, like, go get some help. (laughs) I always tell people, get help before you need help. If you think about therapy, coaching, mentorship, if you get it before you need it, it's okay. Yeah, You don't have to wait for life to fall apart or for yeah. some horrible event to happen to reach out to someone. And we need to encourage each other to reach out to other people. You know, we see somebody struggling. We need to say, hey, hey, girl, you know, you, you need to go talk to somebody about that. You might want to go talk to somebody. Yeah. Um, to normalize that process. Definitely. 
And I think that we don't do enough normalizing and we don't do enough of supporting one another. And it goes back to what you said, finances. Because while you're speaking, I grew up in Chicago. Of course, Chicago is a very urban area, but you're in South Carolina that's very rural. So what about those places who in the beginning, you know, they don't have the resources, period, about um, what about those small areas, especially rural South Carolina or rural anywhere, you know, because it's some it's some rural places in Illinois, you know, who don't have the resources to begin with. And they may need that mentor program. They may need that coach, but the education is not there or yeah. the education is there, but they decide to relocate because the money isn't there. Yeah. And so, you know, it's like this, this cycle, right? It's like wow. this cycle. So education, family, lack of funding in the community or access to, to those funds, right? And then going off to, to college or, you know, taking up a trade. And then, you know, it's like this never ending cycle and it's something missing. Yeah. Well, not just something, it's many things that's yeah. missing. So let me correct myself. Many things <laughs> that that's missing. So, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Lancaster, South Carolina has an amazing program, which teaches African-American young men how to be men. Mm-hmm. And how to present yourself when you are interviewing for a job, Mm -hmm. the skills that you may need for this job, and also just helping them build a strong platform to become businessmen. Yeah. How amazing would it be to have that type of program in every community? And, And granted, you wouldn't reach all youth. You couldn't reach everyone. But the amount of kids that we may be able to keep out of the criminal justice system just by ways of programming like that and the fact that it's not available, the fact that funding is not created specifically for that, the fact that funding is not utilized specifically for programs and things like th- things like those in the community is really sad. It is. I was thinking, we, we've been talking a lot about weaker points of our criminal justice system. And we also talked about the programs that's out there, the agencies that's out there, like, you know, South Carolina for criminal justice. What do you feel is the most effective area of the criminal justice reform? I think what's working is that we are having conversations we're sitting down and we're we're talking with people. We're educating the community. I think that's what works. I think that's the start of a lot of changes. And again, with that three-pronged approach, when we're sitting at the table and we can present all aspects from law, research, and behavioral health, it's, it's hard to argue with research. When you, when you sit down and you say, this is what has happened in this county 
from this year to this year. This is how many people were arrested for this offense between this time. This is how many Black people were arrested for this. You know, when you can sit down and you can talk about numbers, then you can have open discussion. When you can talk about policies and and, and laws that are just outdated or ineffective, you can have conversations about those. When you, when you talk about policing and training of officers, you know, how much mental health training do officers receive? You know, how well prepared are people to deal with people with mental health issues? You know, if they encounter someone with mental health, mental health or substance use issues, we're sitting down and we're having a lot of conversations. We're collaborating with a lot of organizations that are like-minded and doing similar work. So I think that is the most effective part of the process right now. Yeah. And I have to agree with that. And speaking of being able to collaborate with other entities in a community, South Carolina, Rock Hill, South Carolina, they are actually looking for a clinician to work with their police department. And when they are receiving some of these calls, especially for families that they have identified that a person with a mental health illness lives there, they want that person, that clinician to come out to be able to interact with that individual and de-escalate the situation before that situation even, you know, get out of control. And I think that if, again, if we can build that into our budget, again, going back to finance, right? If we can build that into our state budget, then that would be amazing. Yeah. And so a lot of people get discouraged because when they see that post, it's only for what, $45,000, maybe $43,000. And you say to yourself sometimes, you know, as a clinician, you know, we put a lot of money and a lot of time into our education and keeping our certifications up and keeping our licensures up. And also, you know, our continuing education credits that we have to, you know, maintain and stay in compliance with our boards. And so when you look at that salary and all of the work that goes behind being a clinician, that might discourage you. Yeah. So again, budget, finance, is is an issue that we I have heard us say multiple times in this conversation. And so, like you said, just being able to look at things holistically and coming up with a, a more strategic, mm-hmm. a more effective plan is what we need here in America. So if someone wants to be an advocate or volunteer, for South Carolina for criminal justice, what steps should they take? Yeah, so we are always excited to have people join the movement. We're so excited about it. If you go to our website, there's actually a place that says join the movement. And our website is www.sc4cjr, and that's the number four. So it's SC, the number four, CJR. Um, And again, that link is there that says join the movement. You can click on it. You can put in your information and we'll get an email and somebody from our team will get back to you. Or you can email me directly at Donna at SC for CJR. Again, that's the number four. You know, and if you're interested in what we're doing or just want to know more about what we're doing before you commit to joining the movement or being a part of the process, we have tons of content throughout social media and on our webpage. 
you can like, share, and subscribe to our social media platforms where we post, again, a lot of great content. You can find Philip's blog on there. You can find videos. We will, we're interviewing people sometimes. You'll find us in clips in the media. Anything about what's going on, any updates so on what's happening in the community, you can find it there. And you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We even have like a little TikTok. Not a lot, but it's a little something, something out there. And YouTube. And you can find us on all of those platforms at SC4CJR. Again, SC, the number four CJR. So check us out. See what's out there. If you like it, join us. Well, thank you so much, Miss White, for joining us today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And I myself look forward to having more conversations with you and supporting your agency. And yes, guys, go out and, and join the movement. I know I'll be there. I hope to see you all there as well. Thank you for tuning in to Elevated Voices Podcast where we enjoy using our voice to share information which promotes growth and change. Never feel like you are alone. Join our Elevated Voices podcast community at elevatedvoices underscore on both Instagram and Twitter. Stay tuned to bi-weekly episodes wherever you get your podcast. If there is a topic that you would like me to cover, Or if you have questions, you can send me an email via my Elevated Voices podcast Facebook page. And remember, don't forget to let your voice be heard.